you'd open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, chapter 3, excuse me. This is my uh, fifth message on this series that I've entitled Foundational Principles of the Church. I guess if you believe in coincidences, you believe in coincidences? I don't know. But uh, I was at this uh, conference for the last two days speaking on the state of the church, understanding the times, and, uh, and uh, of course the topic of apostasy within the church was part of that conference, and also the return of the Lord was a big part of that conference and the times that we live in. That so happens to be what my message is on this morning, so hopefully... I can uh, do a good job of bringing that to you this morning. But let's read as an introduction this morning these first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just ask that you would bless your word this morning, that our hearts would be open to the message of your word. Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us, and that the words that are spoken this morning would be your words. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're in the middle of this series of messages, and I, I really think this is an important series of messages on the foundational principles of the church. Why do we gather? Why did we come together and form a church? And the first four messages that we've looked at, the first one being that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And one of the speakers, Dr. <coughs> David Reagan, he, get, he puts up signs. That's one of his things that he likes to do. He's pictures of church signs and he puts up as part of kind of an introduction to his message. And one of the church signs that he put up was the, a sign that called themselves the people's church. Guess what? We're not the people's church. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ must be the head, not the people in the church can never be the emphasis of the church. And unfortunately, so many churches today have that upside down. Then we looked at the aspect of being under the authority of the Word of God. We call ourselves Bereans because we want to search the Scriptures for direction on how we are to live and the things that we are to know about God. And unfortunately, many of the speakers did bring forth how many churches, how many mainline evangelical leaders are now saying that the church, that the church no longer needs to be directed just by the Word of God. That is so common, it's tragic to me. You know, on one hand, this conference was exciting to go to and to speak about the return of the Lord, and on the other hand, it's absolutely heartbreaking how rapidly the evangelical church is moving away from the truth, how quickly it's falling into apostasy and mainline evangelical teachers teaching that we must rely on other things other than the Word of God alone. That's a lie. It's an absolutely lie. But we must be founded on the Word of God. If we're not founded on the Word of God, Paul says but we will be thrown about, tossed about, blown around by the wind of every sort of doctrine that comes along. And that is tragically 
where much of the Christian community is at today. Oh, this is popular today, and they go to that fad, and then that fad loses some steam, and they're blown over to this fad, and they're tossed about, and there's nothing but confusion because people are not rooted in the Word of God, and they're leaning on the understanding of men, and we don't want to be that way. We want to be founded in the Word of God. We'll have consistency in the teaching and understanding of the things to come then. Then we looked at church administration or government and how the Bible directs us to govern our church through elder leadership and deacon leadership and the qualifications there. And we want to follow God's word in those matters because we don't want to be a weak church by not having biblical leadership within the church. And lastly, last week, we spent time looking at the body of Christ, the functions of the body of Christ, how we're many members, and yet God has called us together to form one unified group serving different purposes, having different gifts, but each one must be doing the work that the Spirit has directed that person to do. Each person here as part of the body has responsibilities to the body. If each one or individuals choose not to do the work that God has prepared for them within the body, the body itself will suffer. The body will be weak. It's as if you have a foot that says, I'm not going to function. And you won't be able to walk properly. You'll limp. You'll be weak. The body will be incomplete. This morning, I want to look at the aspect of where the church is at today in, in a general sense and looking at the return of Christ. And this is important. Greg and I, when we came together to form this church body, to start this church body, we always wanted to have an emphasis on understanding and looking for the return of Christ because we see within the early church a constant looking for the return of Christ. It was an emphasis that was within the church. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Today, unfortunately, many churches will never preach on the return of Christ. They've completely lost the excitement of being with their Savior. But whether you go to the book of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he, he had, um, applauds them for saying that they're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. That was one of the characteristics of that church. How many churches could Paul say that about today? Could he applaud them and say, boy, I applaud you because you're looking forward to the return of your Savior. Many churches act as if that's unimportant. Many churches and many pastors today preach as if that doesn't matter because, well, we've got to be worried about the here and now. We're not to be living for the here and now. We're supposed to be living for the eternity that's to come. And so I want to just share some passages with you this morning. First of all, Paul puts this in context in Colossians chapter 3. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, he first of all reminds the Colossi believers that they are Christians, that they're followers of Jesus Christ. And in light of the fact that they're followers of Jesus Christ, he says, this is how Christians ought to be. You claim to be a Christian. Well, this is what your life should look like. First of all, he says, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above. I thought about that. I think that's what Paul is saying to them. Set your affections, the things that you love, set those on heavenly things because that's where Christ is. He says Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We should set our affections on where our Savior is at. Unfortunately, we oftentimes, and I think I'm as guilty as the next person, we get trapped into setting our affections on things here on earth. It's, it's not uncommon. We can see the things here on earth. We can touch the things here on earth. We can see the people and the, th the things that are going on. And so it's easy for us to get sidetracked, whereas 
We can't see heaven. We can't see Christ. But we need to remind ourselves and remind one another regularly. And we see Paul doing this throughout the New Testament. Remind us to put our affections, our hearts on things above. And then he emphasizes again in verse 2. He says, set your minds on things above. We see that so often in the writing of Paul. He say one thing and then he says it again in the very next verse. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And I think of the mind. Set your thoughts and your determinations. You know, Paul said he was running a race. And he said, I don't want to lose sight of the finish line. I want to look ahead and I want to see the finish line. I want to remind myself where I'm heading. So oftentimes we don't set our minds on where we're heading and we lose sight or track. Remember the great story of Pilgrim's Progress and when he, what happens when the pilgrim gets off the path. He gets caught in different traps because he takes his eye off of where he's going. We need to set our determination and our thoughts on where we're headed, not on earthly things, not the emphasis on earthly things. I don't think this is an excuse not to be a responsible person or to be responsible towards your family. There are certainly teachings that Paul has given. But he says our overall guide in life should be on things above. Where are we heading to? Let's not lose sight. As Paul says that in verse 3, he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. You know, the life that you did have before Christ, Paul's saying, says, if you should have died to that, that that should not be the utmost, but that we are to set our things, not on things that are perishing here on earth, but things that are eternal in heaven. Our life is in Christ, and we died to the things of this world. They should not take precedence in our life, but the things of Christ should. I think this is very difficult to be truthful because this life is so distracting. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is he keeps us busy, and I'm, as, I'm probably more guilty than anyone, is that Satan keeps us busy running from fire to fire to fire, putting out all of those fires on things that are temporal. And it happens to us continually. I think you can all relate to that. It keeps us entrapped, stopping us from... Th- because the, the old squeaky wheel kind of theory gets the, the grease, right? We're always running to, to put the grease on that wheel that's squeaking. But we are to die to those things because our life is now hidden in Christ. And lastly, in verse 4, again, Paul reminds, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, will also appear in glory, with him in glory. The emphasis here is that, guess what? Christ is going to appear. You know, one of my favorite passages in Second Peter when it says that scoffers will come in the last days saying, where is his coming? It's been the same since the time of our fathers. But over and over and over again, we see in the New Testament teaching that he is coming back. Oh, people get impatient. They get impatient and think, why has it not come? Why is it not happening? But Paul is emphasizing here, not only is Jesus coming back, but we also will appear in glory with him. I just want to take you to a few passages and remind you of this this morning. Turn to John chapter 14 for the words of Jesus Christ himself. A well-known passage. <coughs> We're going to try our best to get through without a coughing fit today. We're on, our, on the road to recovery here. I just want to show you some passages. I want to be an encouragement to you this morning to encourage you and to remember that your Lord's returning and to be excited about it. 
John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's encouraging him here. We're to encourage one another all the more that we see the day approaching. Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He knows that he's going to be leaving them soon, and he doesn't want them to be overcome by distress. In verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I always liked the, the King James Version where it said there was many mansions. I like that even better than a room. How about you? But there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know, Jesus says he's having to leave. His disciples are distressed. <laughs> they don't want to lose him. They don't want to be departed. There's, there's grief in their hearts, I believe, but he's telling them to not be troubled, but to trust in God, and not just to trust in God, but to trust in me. Isn't that not what we've done as believers? That we trust in God. We believe in that which we cannot see. And he says that he's going to prepare a place for us, and the most encouraging thing is as if he goes to prepare a place for us, he says, I will come back. I will come back. Jesus Christ is not a liar. Jesus Christ is a truth teller. And when he says that he will come back, he says he will come back to take us to be with him so that we may be with him and where he is. Boy, I'll tell you, that's an encouragement to me because I got to believe where Jesus is going to take me is a lot better than what I have right now. One of the questions that was asked in the question and answer time at the end of the conference yesterday was, well, boy, should we really talk to our young people about the return of Jesus Christ? I mean, aren't we going to discourage them? Because I thought it was really interesting that this person, the way they asked this question was, if I'm saying this right, is aren't we going to discourage them? Because, well, they want to live their lives and they have all these things and accomplishments that they want to accomplish <clears throat> getting married and having families and going to school and having careers and things like that. Boy, that's so short-sighted. This person was almost insinuating within their question that, well, they thought perhaps maybe young people couldn't handle this. I want to tell you that for me, myself, when I was eight years old, I heard a message on the rapture, and I wanted to be a part of it. I couldn't sit in my seat. I had to go forward. And I think that I've been looking forward to that ever since I was eight years old. A child can understand these things. A child can be excited about wanting to be with the Lord, and a child can just as well trust that the Lord has something even better than what this world has to offer. Sure, this world has things to offer. Sure, there's good things here that God has created for us, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has in store for those that love him. I don't, I, my mind cannot even conceive. But Jesus said he went away to prepare a place for me. And he says he's coming back. And I think a child can be just as excited about that as a man who's 80 years old. Can he not? We have to have childlike faith. And then if we go to Acts chapter 1, we see in the ascension of Christ here. <coughs> I like this passage. Because I can see myself here, the disciples and Jesus went out to hillside outside the city. And Jesus was taken up into heaven before their very eyes. <coughs> and 
And I like verse 10. It says, and, and it says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. I can imagine if Jesus began to rise and go into heaven, looking intently into the sky was a pretty accurate statement, wasn't it? Mouths open, exactly. And I am sure they were completely unaware of what was going around them because they were fixated on what had just happened before them. And here they are, they're looking intently into the sky, and two men appear dressed in white. I'm sure it was two angels. And in verse 11, the men say to him, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It's very clear. Jesus ascended into the air. Jesus is going to return in the air. And we can see that as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a well-known passage, one of the key passages on what we would call the rapture. I thought one of the speakers yesterday did an excellent job of pointing out this passage is not just about the rapture, but it's also about the resurrection. This section is often thought, thought of as a passage on the rapture, but it is true that it speaks of the resurrection here too. The resurrection would, be the re the resurrection would apply to those that have died that have died in Christ, that are believers in Christ, and that they will be resurrected at this same moment. The rapture would apply to those who are alive. You know there's going to be a generation that will be alive when Christ returns? Scripture tells us that. There will be a generation that will not suffer the, the consequences of death, but will be raptured, will be taken into heaven. And this is the best description of that in Scripture, I believe. Starting in verse 13... It says, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who, have fall, who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. <coughs> Paul, when he was with the Thessalonians, had explained to them, you know, Paul really probably only spent about six to eight weeks with these, this church as he worked and taught with this church as they started this church. And you know, in that early, short amount of time, I believe that Paul shared a lot of prophecy with them and told them of the things to come. And the, this church here had become concerned. Well, what about the brothers and sisters in Christ that have died? They're going to miss this event, this rapture that Paul has spoken to us about. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or as a way of saying they have died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, Paul is not telling believers they, that they cannot grieve when they lose a loved one. But we are not to grieve like men who have no hope. You know, when I read it, read it put this way, is that when we know a lost person dies, we mourn for that person because they're eternally lost. When a, a believer dies, we grieve for ourselves because we miss them. We don't grieve for the believer who's died because we know they're in the presence of Christ. And I think most of you have probably experienced that, where you've lost a loved one. You know that they were a believer. It was amazing when I was at Greg's bedside when Greg died. And I was so overcome with emotion because I knew at that moment he was in the presence of Jesus Christ. And at the same moment, I was overcome with grief because I knew I had lost for a period of time that relationship. But I didn't grieve for him because I knew he was in the presence of the Lord. 
And we don't have to grieve for our loved ones who are love that follow Christ. We don't have to grieve, as Paul says, as one as those who have no hope. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. So Jesus will bring with him those who have died with him when he, they come. According, according to the Lord's own word, so Paul has been told this from the Lord himself, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. You know, one day I think we're going to hear that trumpet call. One day we're going to hear that trumpet call. I think the whole world's going to hear that. But those of us that are believers, we're going to know instantaneous what that trumpet call means. The world will be confused. You know, when the, when the Lord appeared to Jesus on the road to Damascus, the followers around him, they heard the noise, but they couldn't understand it. But Paul did. Paul did. We're going to hear that trumpet call, and we're going to know what that means. The trumpet call and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the resurrection. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected at that moment. In verse 17, after that, we who are still alive on our left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now I can tell you, if you're a believer, these words are encouraging. If you're a believer, these words are encouraging. They're not discouraging if you truly love the Lord. One of the things that I've challenged young people over the years, are you really looking for the Lord's return? Are you excited about it? Or are you too busy with your plans? Because we want to be with the Lord forever. And I think it's very clear from this passage, there will be believers that are alive at the time that Jesus Christ returns. Why not us? Why not us? Why not us be the generation? It's very possible. It's very possible. We have seen the greatest event in prophetic happenings in our generation with the formation of the, of the re-establishment of the nation of Israel. And I can tell you that if you look at the prophetic signs, we are marching rapidly to the end. I think even the unbelieving world knows it. I can just feel the tension. Can't you feel the tension in the world? The world understands that the world cannot continue like this. They're looking for a solution from man's methods. They're not looking to God. Man, we, one of the speakers did such a good job of pointing out we have had so many opportunities within this nation in the last 20 years to be called back to repentance. Whether it was 9-11, whether it was Katrina, whether it was you, you just name it, boom, boom, boom. And do our leaders ever call the nation like Abraham Lincoln to have a national day of prayer to call ourselves back to God? Oh, maybe generically. Maybe generically. Oh, you pray to your God. Well, I'm telling you, praying to a God is no good. We need to pray to the true God. And we've had chances as a nation. We need to encourage one another because I think Paul tells us we need to encourage one another because as the world moves closer and closer to the end... The things that we see happening around us are discouraging. When I see a national Christian leader writing, as one of the speakers put up on Christianity Today, and writes an article and says that he doesn't care for the God of the Bible 
Because that God of the Bible looks like an angry, unloving God. And that's not the kind of God I want. I want a God that understands that to err is human. I want my God to be more like me. Guess what? I don't want a God like me. I want a God that's the God of the Bible that's holy and loving and merciful, but also has a standard. And that provides us Jesus Christ as a way of escape. But to print that apostasy is discouraging to see that. And then to have people accept that as, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And to be so foolish by it. I want us to turn to another passage, 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is describing the same events that Paul's writing here. Starting in verse 51, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. Paul's telling them something that they currently or did not understand or know. He says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. He's saying there we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. You know, we're mortal right now, but if we're here, when Christ returns, we're going to be immortal instantaneously. In the twinkling of an eye, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will be true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Death is, of course, the enemy of mankind. And Jesus Christ is going to conquer death at this moment. But we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And lastly, related to this on Christ's appearing, I just want to show you, turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Jesus Christ himself again. The last chapter of the Bible. I just underlined this in my Bible. You can, you can do what you want, but I want to cling to these promises. Jesus Christ says in chapter 22, this is Jesus speaking, in verses 7, 12, and 20, he says, Behold, in 7, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give everyone according to what he has done. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming soon. Jesus closes the word of God three times emphasizing, I am coming soon. I just want to encourage with that So. Turn over in Revelation to chapter 3. So where are we at today? Where is the church in America at today? Well, I think the church of America today looks a lot like the church of Laodicea. That's not a compliment. That's not a good thing. <laughs> As Dr. Reagan pointed out, he says he put up a church sign. One of the churches had chosen the name Laod- 
church of Laodicea for themselves, and he was just astonished. Of course, it is a biblical name, as he said, but as, as he pointed out, so is Jezebel, and you don't find me naming my daughters that. So I suspect they did that in ignorance, I hope. I hope. But the church of Laodicea is not a church that we want to emulate, and yet within our culture today, I think that unfortunately we look much like this church. I want to just read and make a few comments about, but starting in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Revelations, just as Jesus speaking to the angel of the church in Laodicea, <coughs> these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds. They are neither hot, they are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those to whom I love, I rebuke and dis discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I just want to point out a few thoughts about this church. First of all, Jesus Christ says this church is lukewarm. It's interesting that the city of Laodicea actually was a very wealthy city, but they had one significant problem. They did not have a good water supply. They actually had an aqueduct that came from some springs about six miles away, but the aqueduct where the springs were were hot water springs. And as the water traveled through the aqueduct, guess what? It would lose its heat, and by the time it would, by the time it would get to the town, though, it would be lukewarm. Drinking lukewarm water is no good, is it? So I think exactly the people understood the reference here. But lukewarm, you'd rather have your water be hot, or you'd rather have it be cold and refreshing. But you don't care for it to be one or the other. As one writer, I was, as I was preparing for this message, one writer put it, he says, this church represents a church that's got enough of Jesus to feel good about themselves, but not enough of Jesus to get into heaven. You hear that? You know, there's a, there's a real desire out there to be spiritual, to have some of Jesus, but to not to really have Jesus be the master of my life, because, well, I'm not sure I really want that, but I want to at least have some Jesus. I want to feel spiritual. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said in the last days there would be a form of godliness, but they would deny the power. And that's exactly where we're at. There's a lot that have the form of godliness. And then this church goes on, and what's Jesus accuse them of? He says, they're saying to themselves three things. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Three emphasis on their worldly wealth. I was talking to one of the people that went with us to the conference yesterday, and you notice that most ministries, I can't hardly think of a ministry that doesn't spend a significant amount of their time worrying about acquiring more money. I mean, you just turn on the TV and watch some of the programs that call themselves Christian, 
and they'll spend half of their program coming up with gimmicks and at, for way, different ways to ask you for money. It's always shocked me. How does the creator of the world need his, your money? He has everything. It's always shocked me that we have to put so much emphasis on trying to acquire wealth. And we, I mean, we were at a beautiful church yesterday. My word, what a facility. $25 million facility, $25 million annual budget. Oh, it must be successful, right? It must be. And you could have the temptation of sitting back and saying, I don't know anything about that church. I'm just telling you. You could sit back and say, wow, look what we have done. Look what we have done. The real temptation within the Church of America to have everything look beautiful, have it look big and grand, large numbers, and to say, well, we're rich. <laughs> How many times have you heard, we're the richest nation in the world? Well, we're the richest in the nation in the world. If we can't afford it, that's just wrong. We're the richest nation in the world. No, we're the biggest debtor in the world. We just happen to be able to borrow more money than anyone else. And then we tell ourselves that's being rich when really, in truth, we're bankrupt. I think tragically, unfortunately, the churches might think, well, we're the richest churches in the world. Oh, look at those poor churches in Sudan. Look at those poor churches in China or India. They don't have any grand buildings like we got or programs. And, and then the, the danger might be is they might be bankrupt inside. And the church in China that's meeting in some little apartment and 12 people are getting together might actually be a real church that really has the Holy Spirit. And they're really looking forward to the return of Christ. No, Jesus, he condemns them. He says, you do not realize. He says, you say you're rich. You've acquired great wealth. You don't need anything. But the way I look at it, the way Jesus calls it, and Jesus calls it right, he says, you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's kind of amazing because the church, because Laodicea was considered a wealthy trading town. It was a very wealthy town, actually. They were known for three things. They were a financial center. They were wealthy because of that, so they had banking. That, was, and that brings wealth. They had an incredible textile industry. They, they shipped, they transported or exported clothing around the world. And the other thing I didn't know about the church of, or the city of Laodicea is that they made an ISAV, of all things, that was exported around the world that was considered this valuable ISAV. Supposedly gave you great eyesight. The only problem was it caused you to go blind. So here, they think they're rich. They think that they have this great textile clothing industry and they have this ISAV. And Jesus condemns them for those very things. He says, no, I see you're poor. And oh, by the way, you're blind. And lastly, you're naked. See, God's view of things is so different than man's. It's so upside down. But God sees things how they really are. But Jesus does give, you know, Jesus is writing to speaking to this church because he loves them. He loves them. And he says that I love those, I rebuke those, I discipline those that I care about. Jesus hasn't given up on this church. As far gone as this church looks like they are. But he tells them that there's a time that's coming. I think it's interesting that Jesus, you know, we see the, you've all probably seen the painting or the picture over the years where Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Well, that comes from this passage. 
And a lot of the times that's given as a means of salvation message. Well, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, but it's really taking this out of context because you see, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm knocking at the door of this church. See, I'm not on the inside of this church. I'm on the outside. And I'm waiting for someone to hear me knocking, waiting for someone to hear me. How many churches do they think they're Jesus's churches, but Jesus is on the outside? And I don't want to be that kind of church. I want Jesus to be in the church, to be leading the church. And we need to listen to his voice because the time came when time ran out for this church. Even though Jesus loved them, even though he rebuked them and disciplined them, calling them back, there's a time that ran out for them. You know, last summer there was a big conference that the Lutheran Church had downtown Minneapolis and they voted. They voted. How about voting on God's word? They voted and 66% of them decided it was okay for homosexuals to be ministers within their church. And the moment they voted on it, a hurricane, uh, not a hurricane, but a tornado came out of nowhere and blew at the church building where they were meeting and blew the conference facility all apart that was set up outside and literally took the steeple on the church and bent it over a cross. And you know what the response was? See, my response would have been fear. Fear of God. Because I just violated his word. You know what their response was? They laughed. They laughed. Oh, some people would say this was from God. God doesn't work that way. Oh, doesn't he? Oh, doesn't he? I think they had a warning. The warning they came and probably have come to the end of the warning. Because they voted on God's word. And they said, well, God, what you said doesn't count. What we say does. Because, you know, God's word, that's probably not that popular right now in the general culture. There may be a time that will come that the culture won't stand for us even to meet together and to preach in God's word. You know, in Canada, which we think that is a free country, you cannot get up as a minister and speak out against homosexuality. Because that's hate speech. And they'll put you in jail. Because you're generating hate speech against a group that we don't want you to speak that way. And the fact that freedom of religion, well, that isn't, that's trumped by, um, by what we want to accomplish. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. I want to conclude this in 1 John chapter 2. I want to leave you with these words to encourage you. <clears throat> Starting in verse 28. First of all this, John tells us, he says, Now, dear children, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So John's encouragement, he says, continue in him. Why is he telling them that? Because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to continue in him to stay faithful, to stay on that right path. And John says we do this so that when he appears, so first of all, he is appearing, that when he appears, you want to be on the path because when Jesus appears, you want to be confident, unashamed before him at his coming. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times I would be ashamed if Jesus Christ came back. 
at that moment. That I wouldn't have been confident because I wasn't on the path that I should be on. John going on, he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Verse 1 of chapter 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You know that we are the children of God. I don't want you to forget that. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God. You're a child of God. But the child of God needs to represent what the, the Father wants you to represent. You need to be a good representative of the family of God. And so John's encouraging us that. Don't forget that the love of the Father has been lavished on us. Our response, why do we live according to God's word? Because God has loved us so much that he has adopted us into his family. It should be the natural response. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and that is what we will be has not, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a time coming. We don't know what we're going to be like exactly, but when he comes in that instant, in that twinkling of an eye, we're going to become like Jesus Christ. We're going to receive those eternal, immortal bodies, and we shall be like him, and we'll see him as he really is. In verse 3 it says, And everyone who has this hope, purifies himself just as he is pure. I think that the reason why the church is so worldly today was because the church has lost this hope. See, when you're not hoping for Jesus Christ to come back, when you're not hoping to be with Jesus Christ, what's the point of getting ready for it? But the, the church has become just as worldly. I was really sad <clears throat> that that one of the speakers said that recent studies says that 8% of Americans, when they take the polls, can give the right answers as to what it means to be born again. 8%. That's less than 10%. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe that we are no longer a Christian nation, and I suppose that's true in the true sense. But 8%, only 8% of people actually know what it means to be born again in a, in a nation in a nation where we're absolutely free to present the gospel. We're absolutely free. There's nothing stopping us except us from presenting the gospel and winning the lost. And that means 92% of our nation is lost. <clears throat> 92%. I think we've lost sight of eternity. We've lost sight of the consequences of eternity for those that are lost. <clears throat> And Christians, unfortunately, are oftentimes looking <clears throat> like the church of Laodicea. And we're concerned about our wealth and our, our time and things and the things that we want to do. And we've lost sight of that people are going to hell. People are headed to hell. And so I want to encourage you both in your own Christian walk this morning, I want you to have the hope to not lose sight of the hope, to purify ourselves and to be about the work. I don't know what Christ has in store for us, but I'm very certain it's greater than what we have today. I'm very certain. And you'll have all of eternity to enjoy the things that Christ has for you. I want you to put your hope on things above. When you put your hope on things above, the rest of things fall in place. 
when the church stops preaching about the hope and preaching about being with the Lord and preaching about eternity, everything gets confusing. And we get our focus off on the wrong things. And so one of the foundational principles of this church is you'll never stop hearing me preach about the return of the Lord. You'll never stop hearing me preaching about eternity because we're going to be a church that emphasizes that because I want our focus to be on the right things. I need to be reminded regularly, and so do you. And if you read the New Testament over and over again, you'll see that over and over again the apostles remind the church that there's something after this life. And that's what we're called to, and that's what we're to be living for. So let's end our message there. I want to give you an opportunity to share this morning. Um, we won't have communion this morning because we're having a fellowship meal. But if anybody went to the conference yesterday, would like to share anything that struck them from the conference or uh, prayer requests, I do have a couple of prayer requests I want to bring to your attention too.